Okay, so part four of Tabernacles here this uh, evening. And I need to just kind of remind you what we talked about last night because it really kind of flows for tonight's. Last night we showed you from Deuteronomy, I think Hosea, Isaiah, a number of different places that at the Feast of Tabernacles, what was supposed to happen. And that is that God gathers people to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, which by the way, that is where the temple is at, where the temple was built, so that he can then teach them the law. The law goes out from Mount Zion so that they understand it, so that they will obey it, follow it, and do so joyfully. Not as a means of drudgery, but as a means of rejoicing. And so when the law goes out and when they understand the law, it's, it's, it's life. It's an ornament to grace their neck. And that is what Proverbs speaks of about the law. And so keep that in mind because now we see that it was on the eighth day, there was a new beginning. And on the eighth day, something very special is going to happen here when Jesus is going to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. We already talked about on the first few days, they will light the candle, the light in Jerusalem. And it is at that time that Jesus is proclaiming, I am the light of the world. We also see that on the last day of the festival, the, the great day is when the priests would go out the water gate to get water and pour it out. And it was called living water. And it is on that very day, the scriptures are very clear, that he calls himself the living waters. He is saying, I'm the light, I'm the waters, and now we get to the eighth day, and something is supposed to happen on the eighth day. Remember last night, we talked about after the seven days, that's when the law goes forth so that it will be taught and understood. So look at what it says here as we continue in John 8. The first five verses here, it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. So, right away, first thing in the morning, he's going to Mount Zion. That's the temple. And all the people came unto him. He gathers the people to him, to Mount Zion. That's what all those verses said yesterday. And he sat down and he taught them. What do you think he was teaching them? Okay, I can guarantee you it wasn't about solitaire. He's teaching them the law, Torah, the word of God. And it says then, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. In other words, she was caught. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? So here these Pharisees and scribes are bringing this woman and saying, this is what Moses says. This is the law of God. It says if there is someone caught in adultery, they are to be stoned. But what do you say? Are you going to agree with the law of Moses? Or are you going to disagree with the law of Moses? Now, the interesting thing is we're going to see that many in the church today are going to say Jesus disagreed with the law of Moses here. We're going to show you that's not true. But that is the mantra. That, oh yeah, Jesus is going to disagree because this woman is not going to be stoned. But for now, I just want you to note that it is on the eighth day that this is happening on Mount Zion and they are sitting at Jesus' feet and Jesus is teaching them. That is the exact picture the entire Old Testament tells us Tabernacles is about, as we spoke of last night. Exactly. Well, 
Just like I was saying last night as well that the Pharisees did not know the law properly. Just like I think today we don't understand it fully either. And so God has to clean up our mess, and that is what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to straighten up the mess. And he's going to explain to them what this really means. And so he instructs them, and you can kind of read there in the first five verses. He instructs them, and what does he say? Well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That is very important. We're going to talk about that here soon if we get to it tonight but I'm gonna come back to that I'll circle back to it for now I want you to see how they respond to his teaching and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one beginning at the oldest even unto the last and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst After he taught them the law, they all go away. They all are convicted and ashamed, and their conscience is pricked to the heart for some reason. Let me tell you, that's what the law of God does. And that's what happens to these people. Now, while he was doing his instruction, he knelt down and he started writing something in the dirt. Now, I've heard comedians say he was writing the names of their girlfriends one at a time, you know, all of those kind of things. Ruth, and there goes one. Naomi, there goes another one. That might be funny, but I don't think that's what he was doing. But I think maybe there's a couple of options here. Just possibly he was writing some scripture the word of God. Because I'm going to take you to Jeremiah and show you what it says here in chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. But what I want you to note before we look at this is how were these Pharisees and scribes treating Jesus before? They had rejected him as the living waters. They had rejected him as the light of the world. They had rejected him completely. And now... All of a sudden, they are convicted and ashamed of their sins. They weren't before, but now they are. Look at what Jeremiah says. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. Those people had forsaken him, and they became ashamed. And it says, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. The context of this talking about being a fountain of living waters cannot go past you. This is a tabernacle kind of thing. These Jews, they weren't dumb. They knew the word way better than all of us put together. And they knew, even if he would start writing these verses, this verse down, or just Jeremiah, and started writing this verse, they would realize he was claiming to be the living waters. They have forsaken him, and he is now writing, maybe he was writing their names in the dust. Maybe, I, I don't know. Just a possibility. But nonetheless, it says, those who forsake him, they will be ashamed and they will be written in the dust of the earth. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. I think that Jeremiah predicted this was going to happen. That those that would forsake the living water would be ashamed and they would be written in the dust of the earth. But they were convicted of their sins instead. Guys, when we're called to Mount Zion and the law goes out from Mount Zion, I think that will be for us as well. We'll be ashamed. We're going to see things like Zechariah 12, verse 10. 
where it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. There's a day coming when the Jews will realize they crucified their Messiah. We read in Romans 11:25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. When is this going to happen? When the deliverer comes from Zion, when the law goes out. There are going to be many Jews who are going to realize, again, they crucified their Messiah. You see, God has not divorced Israel, or Judah. We were talking about this around campfire the other night. That many people don't realize, uh, we're Logan and whatnot, he was saying, if somebody would have asked them, did God ever divorce Israel? He'd have said, no, no way. But scriptures are very clear in Jeremiah, is it 3.8? He divorced Israel. And we were talking about a deeper understanding of the gospel. That, remember Romans also talks about the only way that if you get a divorce, the only way you can get remarried again is what? If your husband dies. If the husband dies, now you're free to remarry. If Jesus had divorced Israel, like Jeremiah 3.8 tells us, then he had to die before he could take his bride back. Another level of the gospel there. He is not done with the Jew. And the Gentile, let me tell you something, there is a day coming when they're done. They will have rejected and forsaken him to the point it's too late. And then what's going to happen? Then guilt and shame will come as the law will come out from Zion. And that's the picture we're seeing here. Hosea 4, 6. We looked at this last night a little bit. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We always hear that and everybody thinks it's you know, lack of knowledge of biblical doctrine or you know, political knowledge or whatever. But it continues to say this. You're destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law. What is this verse telling us knowledge is? Law. You've rejected the law. So this verse that we keep quoting time and time again, my people are destroyed for lack of Law is a very good paraphrase to that because the rest of the verse tells us that's what it means. As I've said many times before, we have gotten rid of the law in modern day Christianity and people are perishing. The churches have become corrupt with progressive, progressive churches There's so many different names. They just change the name all the time. New Age crept into the church. And we called it seeker-sensitive. Seeker-sensitive went to emergent. And now emergent has become progressive. All of them are evil. Why? They're destroyed for lack of knowledge. I want to show you what... A.W. Tozer said, I love this quote. He says, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of of late? How little revival has resulted? Anybody relate to that? Uh, Tozer was the early 1900s when he died, wasn't it? It says, I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. 
To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precept laid down in Scripture is to waste a lot of words and get nothing for our trouble. Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Powerful, isn't it? My people perish for lack of knowledge. The law of God, it tells us, how do we know what to obey? The word of God, the law of God tells us what we are to obey. Isn't there a scripture that, and I can't, I'd have to look it up, but that talks about this, like that God will not hear our prayers if we're... Psalm 66, 13 possibly, or 33. David says, the Lord, if, if I had held iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my prayers. Proverbs 28, verse 9, I believe it is, also says that if I... Um, anyone who turns a deaf ear to the law of God, even his prayers are detestable to him. So yeah, those are scripture verses saying exactly what Tozer is saying. No, you don't. You don't hear that from the pulpits. You see, obedience is important. Not for salvation. Jesus accomplished that. But obedience is important because you are saved. And you will not have a relationship with your Savior if you're not obeying. Period. You just aren't going to have a relationship. Remember Hosea 9, the Gentiles here. Ephraim became Gentiles. That was prophesied again back in Genesis 48 verse 19. We see that Ephraim would become a multitude of goyim. That was the, pro the, the prophecy. A multitude of nations. Literally, Goyim or Gentiles. Ephraim did become Gentiles. The Assyrians captured those ten tribes. They became Gentiles. Some of them became known as Samaritans. They were those half-breeds that the Jews would have nothing to do with. They were just like Gentiles, if not worse. And so, it says here, Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. What will you do in the solemn day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? This is part of the reason we celebrate these feasts, guys. What will you do in the solemn day? Now, by the way, what was the solemn day feast? Do you remember now? Day of Atonement, which was a picture of Judgment Day, wasn't it? Tell you what, without Christ, I can tell you what you're going to do on the day of Judgment you're going to be soiling your pants without Christ. With Christ, you will be rejoicing. Remember I said the Day of Atonement? It's a good thing for us. <laughs> Judgment is a wonderful thing when you're on the right side of it. We read in Hosea 6 verse 3, Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, goes on, he shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain of the earth. Remember this festival? One of the reasons they pour out that living water on the altar is to ask for rain. You see, we live in an area of the world that rain isn't as predictable as it is in Israel. They had a rainy season. And... So this meant something. So at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were praying for rain to come. And in essence, as I've said before, the latter rain is a picture of the Lord coming back. In essence, they're praying, come Lord Jesus, come. Let it rain. So, then it says, shall we know. When the latter rain comes, when Yeshua comes back, when the Feast of Tabernacles future is going to be lived out, then you shall know. If we follow on to know the Lord. What if you don't follow on to know the Lord? Then you will not know. You're never going to understand the law. You're never going to understand His Word. You're never going to understand Him fully. But you will be ashamed and convicted. 
Jeremiah 16, verse 9 says, O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. I love that verse. Notice the Gentiles are the ones coming from the ends of the earth, from all over the place, and they're saying, Our fathers have inherited lies. I couldn't give a better testimony of my own life. All the lies that I grew up with, whether it be Santa Claus or Sunday, worship, Sunday's the Sabbath, to the law doesn't matter, to a number of things. But there's a day coming, and I already see God opening the hearts of people to understand it. They're going to say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh, the Lord. When he comes, then ye shall know. And I look forward to that. So let me just recap here. Again, as I said, the first seven days we see the light being lit. And Jesus claims to be the light of the world. Then on the great, last and greatest day of the festival, they pour out the water libation, it's called. And we see Jesus claims to be the living water. Then on day eight, this woman is brought before. He calls them. They sit down on Mount Zion at his feet to hear him explain the law of Moses to them. Moses says this, but what do you say? And Jesus says, let me tell you. Let me tell you how screwed up you are. And the law went out from Zion. And when it did, they were convicted and pricked to the heart, ashamed of what they had done. Now, I think there's a reason that they were ashamed of what they had done, but I'll get to that in a moment. Before I do, and, and circle back to this woman at the well, or this woman brought, uh, caught in adultery. The Feast of Tabernacles, as I've already said a number of times, it's a celebration of many things. One of them is Jesus' birth. I was going to have a birthday cake here for Jesus, for Yeshua, because... I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt he was born at this season. I can't tell you that it was on a day of the Feast of Tabernacles. I believe so, but I can't prove that. But I can show you scripturally, I believe, that he was born at this time. Not on December 25th. We've talked about Christmas and those kind of things and the origins. I'm not going to get into that. I just want to show you the good part that he was born here. When John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is literally tabernacled among us. So he did come. It was always God's plan to tabernacle among us. That was the picture of the tabernacle. Every piece of the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. Past, present, and future. We see in Revelation 21, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the temple. Let me show you how we can understand that, real quickly, that he was born at this time. There are 24 divisions of priests, and we read about this in, in Chronicles, I believe it is, 1 Chronicles 24. David set this up, and it says there will be 24 divisions of priests, and they are to serve basically a week out of the year. Now there are, you say, well, there's 52 weeks in a year. Well, not on a Jewish calendar. A Jewish calendar has 51 weeks. So if you have 24 
um, divisions of priests. Each one has to serve one week at a time, but twice a year, that's 48 weeks. 24 priests doing it twice for one week period, 48 weeks, that leaves three weeks out of the year. So what do you do for those other three weeks? Well, during those three festivals where you were required to come to Jerusalem, all priests were on duty. So those priests didn't just work those two weeks, they also worked those other three at the temple. We see in 1 Chronicles 24 that the eighth division of these priests was called the, pre, uh, the division of Abijah. Well, when we go into the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, we see that there was a priest named Zacharias. Now, some of you, I was wondering if anybody was going to ask this morning when we watched the message where it said John the Baptist was a priest. I was wondering if any of you thought, what? Yes, you know why he was a priest? Because he is the father of a high priest, or the son, I should say, of the high priest, John the Baptist, or Zacharias. Zachariah, being a high priest, means that John the Baptist was in the line of a priesthood as well. It tells us that John's dad, Zacharias, was in the priesthood or the, the division of Abijah. In other words, the eighth division. Now, this gets a little sticky at times where it can get confusing because some people try to use this to show that Jesus was born in December, but they don't understand the system, how it works. If you're only serving twice a year, that means if you served in March this year, you won't be serving in March next year. It keeps moving. So throughout the priest's lifetime, you will be serving at different times throughout the year. So you'll get your chance to be there in the winter, and you're going to get your chance to be there in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, all of it. And so it isn't just this nice, okay, Abijah was always in March. It's not like that at all, because it changes every single year. Now we do have records from the Jews talking about when Zechariah serving in Abijah and when Abijah was, and it was in the month of Savan. That is our June and July, somewhere there. Just like the month of Nisan is March or April. You see, they use a lunar calendar, we're on a solar calendar, so ours, it's not always the same every year. Kind of goes back and forth. They have an extra month of Aviv. They have an, an month of Aviv where, because just like we have a leap year, the seasons would get off, and so they would start it when the, the barley became Aviv which was ripe, and so that would begin the month. Well, pretty soon it would get off and off and off, and so they would add that month every so many years. So you'd have 13 months, uh, and I don't know, could be. But my point is, is this, without going through all the boring details for now, I can tell you that Zechariah was serving in the temple in the month of Savan, and that means since the Holy Spirit came, God came and said, you're going to have a child, he was serving at Pentecost, Shavuot. If you count nine months from there for John the Baptist to be born, it's interesting then because we know Jesus is six months younger than John the Baptist. So what we're going to do is you just go from John being conceived. Nine months is when John is born, but back up a little bit. And we see for Jesus to be conceived would be at Hanukkah, the time of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, or our Christmas. In other words, at Christmas time, when everybody's celebrating the birth of Jesus, you really are celebrating Jesus coming into the world, but that's his conception. Nine months from there, we get to tabernacles. 
which would mean that at that time Jesus would be born in the tabernacle among us. Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. So in Luke it talks about him going into burnt incense, Zacharias. I guess I thought that was the day of atonement that he was going in. Is this just his that is like where burning at like the, the in not the inner court or the holy the most holy place. Yep. You have a whole, uh, an outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place. The altar of incense is in the holy place, and the priest would go in there every day. Okay, I thought this was his lot to burn incense in, like, that he was yep. chosen that to be the... And that has been said, and that is wrong. As a matter of fact, we talked about this a while back, and even I was, like, forgetting that. But you, you only went into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement once a year, and, and that's it. But that is not is what John the Baptist dad Zacharias is doing. Yep. Yep. He is in the holy place, not the most holy place. So he's not in there. But in order to get a, a Christmas birthday, a lot of people will put that in there. John the Baptist was going in to burn incense. Yes, but that's not in the most holy place. They did that on a daily basis. And it represented the prayers going up to heaven. So, yeah. They were two consecutive weeks? No. No. Yep. 24 and started over again. So, yep. So, in other words, the eighth course of Abiah or Abijah was Savan 12 to 18 that week. 40 weeks later, John the Baptist is born. That puts John the Baptist symbolically being born at Passover, by the way. Six months later, Kislev 25, again around our December, is when Yeshua is con uh, conceived. Nine months after that is Tabernacles, which explains why there was no room in the inn, because everybody was coming. The census was being taken. And the census was almost always done during these festivals because they knew everybody was coming to one spot. And then 40 days later is when Jesus' purification would take place, which is interesting because Josephus says that Herod died in autumn of 4 BC, which is exactly when it would be that he would be brought to the temple by the law to be dedicated if he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. So that little tidbit is also supporting the idea that Jesus was born at Tabernacles. Okay? So, remember what they're singing? Psalm 118 at this great festival, especially on the seventh day. Psalm 118, it's almost like God arranged a birthday party for Jesus on the Feast of Tabernacles. They would have been singing this, This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. And the Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation, has become Yeshua. The voice of rejoicing and Salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. How appropriate if he was born on tabernacles that they are saying this, rejoicing in salvation is in the tabernacle of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and become my Yeshua. That's what they would have been singing. And often some little in and out in some shepherd field they're praising God I love that Jesus celebrated this festival we see that in John 7 and John 8 we've covered that we know that Jesus is our shelter as Isaiah 25 talks about he is our sukkah we know that he is the living water as John tells us in chapter 4 and 7. Jesus prepares our permanent home. I go and prepare a place for you. Not a temporary sukkah. 
but a permanent home. The temporary sukkah is when he's going to take you to Mount Zion. Jesus is born here, and we also see some pictures of the transfiguration with Day of Atonement, all of those things happening around this time. But anyway, um, I also find it interesting, all the people, the Christians, who tell me that we don't need to do these anymore. We don't need to do these festivals anymore. They're done. They're sure going to be lost when the Lord comes back then, because the Bible itself tells us in the Word of God that Passover and Tabernacles will be celebrated. Ezekiel 45 talks about Passover. Zechariah 14 talks about Tabernacles. Now, I'm not going to even begin to pretend to understand or tell you that I understand what's going on in these. I don't, there's a lot I don't get. When it happens, you'll know. But I can tell you this, it is prophesied and promised. Here's Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The Mount of Olives will be split in two. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem in the Armageddon battle, basically, shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Go read it. Go read it on your own. You will see that these are festivals that are going to be celebrated in the millennial reign. Whatever that is. Now, to close out, I want to go back to this woman caught in sin. Did he break the law in not stoning her? Because she clearly wasn't stoned, remember? He writes in the earth, he who has without sin cast the first stone, and they all go away. At first glance, it does seem like Jesus maybe broke the law here. But I'm going to show you that's not the case. Because the law stated that anyone who was caught in adultery had to be stoned. That is absolutely a fact. Leviticus 20 verse 10 will tell you that. So that's not the problem. So how could Jesus prevent this woman from being stoned? Some will say, well, if anybody can grant mercy, it's Jesus. Only Jesus can grant mercy. I agree. But to be the Messiah, he could not break the law. So that's the problem that I see here. Here's Leviticus 20, verse 10 telling you this. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Notice that. Where's the guy at? Nowhere to be found. Maybe Jesus was writing the name of the other guy in the dirt. I don't know. And they all knew it. It was one of their buddies. Okay? I don't think that's the case, but just throwing that out there, okay? Well, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 22, verse 20, it says this. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, when a, an adulterous woman is brought there and you cannot, she cannot prove that she was a virgin. Now, I know this is gross, but this is why in those days when you were a virgin, you would go sleep with your husband and they would keep the bloody cloth as evidence of her virginity. It was proof that she was a virgin. Okay, now I know that brings all kinds of other questions. We don't have time to get into it. <laughs> but this is how they would do that. Verse 21, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being, a promiscu or being promiscuous while still in her father's house. Can you imagine doing that today? I'll bet women wouldn't sleep around much. You must purge the evil from among you. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Consistency. 
So, as I said, first of all, God is the only true judge. No doubt about that. As I said, he could give mercy, but I just don't think that's the right answer here. Notice that Jesus did tell her, go and sin no more. Um, so, did she sin? Yes, but did she really do what she's being accused of? People say, well, Jesus said, go sin no more. She must have. Don't go sleeping around anymore. Not necessarily. The third thing is, is if you continue reading in Deuteronomy and Leviticus there, what you're going to see is it says this, that the person who caught them is the one that is to throw the first stone. In other words, the woman that is about to be stoned has to be stoned by the witnesses first. Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. It isn't just about being without sin, it's also he who caught them, who is sure of this, who is without sin and fault in the knowledge that this woman has committed adultery. Okay? Deuteronomy 17 is where it says this, the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. Then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. Well, Torah said, if these two witnesses are the ones to cast the first stones here, then you might put it this way, you're the one that has to pull the trigger. Let's just imagine for a moment that you falsely accused somebody of something that was worth of the death penalty. And then you are the one that has to pull the trigger, knowing that she really didn't do anything wrong. would be but one of the reasons that God gave this is to keep false witnesses from coming about because if you kill an innocent person they knew then you are guilty you deserve death that was not something that was taken lightly back in those days either usually on account of two witnesses, yep. Yep. So it is kind of interesting that, you know, giving this law to make sure that there isn't false testimony given. Is it possible that someone here gave false testimony about this woman? She never admits it. Jesus never accuses her of it. Instead... They just say this woman was caught in adultery. Maybe this woman was in on it. I doubt it. I don't know. But is this some big scheme? This isn't the first trap that they tried to set for Jesus, is it? Not at all. Did he uphold the law in saying, go sin no more? Absolutely. He was upholding the law, don't sin. Um... Going back to this first one, but God being the true judge. I'm not saying we don't judge sin that would bring... If we say we don't judge sin and Jesus can be forgiving, all of those kind of things, it's going to bring all justice to a halt today. There would be no justice. So by that standard, no one could be accused, tried, or convicted, or punished, or anything because there's no such thing as a sinless person. Many times, Israel, in the Old Testament, deserved death. And they didn't get it. But there was always a mediator that did step in. And so, there is that aspect that God is the only true judge. He showed mercy to the Israelites many times. But there wasn't necessarily a specific standard that was being broken there. So, anyway...
Here's, I, I'm going to give you what I think is the answer. And it's going to be found in Numbers, and I didn't put it up here. Uh, I believe this is Numbers 19, 20. I, I forgot to put it up here, but anyway, we'll figure it out. It says this, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected. In other words, it's hidden from him. He doesn't know for sure. He just has feelings of jealousy. Then he is to take his wife to the priest. He shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. Let me remind you, where is Jesus at when this woman is brought to him? At the temple. Here is a woman being brought, being accused of adultery. If you don't know if she's guilty for sure, you bring her to the temple. Then you're going to take some dust from the temple floor. It continues, the priest shall put the woman under oath, say to her, if no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have not gone astray, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray, may the Lord cause you to become a curse when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water. I think it's possible that this was all a setup. And the woman did not even do this particular sin. The Pharisees were testing Yeshua like they had many times. And so Yeshua was calling their bluff. Using a helpless woman basically to try to discredit their rival, Yeshua. Numbers 5, thank you. So, as I said, there's no hint of her confession. Here's just two false witnesses coming forth, not willing to throw the first stone because they know what that means. Jesus then, following the law and says, if a woman is brought and there isn't evidence, we're going to take dust... Maybe he was writing Numbers 5 in the... I don't know. Because that's exactly what Numbers 5 says. The ceremony, take this woman to the temple for this ceremony. The other thing that I don't have up here, but we see the Jewish records talking about, is it wasn't just taking her there, but you had to write on the scroll some words. And then those words were burned, and the ashes of those were then put in the bitter water with the dust from the temple. So not only do you have dust from the temple that she has to drink, but the word of God. The, the Jews say that the word Yahweh was written on that scroll, and that they would then have to consume that. So nonetheless, in the Numbers 5 ceremony, there was writing involved. There was dust involved. And now in this woman, there is writing involved. There is dust involved. And in essence, what we're seeing then is every element of the Numbers 5 ceremony is in the John 8 story. So, living water, Yeshua, the water was there, but it was a bitter water if it would bring a curse. If it was not, there was no bitterness, it was living water for you. So we have living water, another element that is present here again. Um, we see a priest had to be involved. You were brought to the priest. She is brought to Yeshua, the high priest. The holy dust, it had to be dust from the tabernacle because it had to be holy. Currently, as I said, they're in the temple. It's holy dust. The writing, it's by the very finger of God. Just like the commandments. So, 
the woman was indeed brought before God, before the high priest, before the living waters, with the dust, with the writing, all of it, and she was found to be innocent, that her abdomen would not swell. Possibility. That's all I can say, but I can tell you this, that I can say for a matter of fact, Jesus could not break the law, therefore, this makes sense. What did he write? As I said, I can't answer this for sure. We have a number of possibilities that I've given you. But possibly he could have also written Yod, Hev, Vav, Hey. Yahweh, because that is what was written in the temple when they would make her drink it. And him just writing that down may have been enough for those priests to say, oh, he knows we're, he's on to us. I don't know. But how ironic that these corrupt men bring this woman before God for judgment, and yet they are the ones that are being judged. They left condemned, ashamed. Why? Unless he was exposing some type of sin, like maybe being a false witness. They were ashamed. Something was revealed there. And since no one could condemn her, by law, she could not be stoned. Had they condemned her, I believe Jesus would have followed the law. But no one did condemn her. And therefore, the judgment of Numbers 5 is carried out by Yeshua here in John 8. Because what does he even say? Where are your accusers? Then I don't condemn you either. That's what Jesus said. What did he write? Hosea 4.14 possibly. He says, therefore your daughters behave like whores. Your daughters-in-law commit adultery. I won't punish your daughters when they act like whores or your daughters-in-laws when they commit adultery. Because the men are themselves going off with whores and sacrificing with prostitutes. Yes, people without understanding will come to ruin. In other words, he's saying, you women are acting like prostitutes, but where are the men? Well, they're doing the same thing. They're just as guilty. Why should I punish the one and not the other? There's that double standard in our society, too, just like in Hosea. A woman sleeps around. She gets all these names like a slut and all these terrible things, right? Where's the man? Same kind of thing going on, a double standard. And God does not have that double standard, let me tell you. This is reflected in the New Testament when Jesus says this in Matthew 5.31, And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And it goes on, whoever marries an adulterer also becomes an adulterer. So, summing this all up, if a woman was unfaithful, she was to be stoned. But if the husband also had been unfaithful, neither were to be stoned. Over and over, we're told in the word that God is faithful. Now, let me back up and explain this a little bit more. If a husband was unfaithful. What we're seeing here in Hosea is that there were women who would be unfaithful, but the man had already been going out and cheating on his wife. That nullified the marriage already. Go ahead. How are they unfaithful when some of them have 700 wives? That's a good question. But they're committed to those 700 Yeah. I would say this would be outside of marriage. One night every two years. Yeah. Um, point being, though, is that if the husband was unfaithful, that means it, it's kind of like a double standard so that it, it nullifies the other one. How can the wife be unfaithful when there's no faith to be unfaithful to? Am I making... I, 
if the husband is already a cheater, it doesn't make her a cheater. And that's, in essence, kind of what Hosea is saying. You guys are all wrong. Jesus, you see, there's a covenant here between us and him. He has never been unfaithful. That means when we cheat on him, we are worthy of death and we are unfaithful. If he would be unfaithful, that would mean we too would not be counted as being unfaithful by being idolatrous. But because he is faithful, always, without exception, we are to blame and we are unfaithful to him. God never changes. He's always just and always loving. And like I said, if he were unfaithful, if he were unloving, it would basically invalidate the entire biblical concept of adultery and breaking faith. And that's this verse here in Hosea. So um, the rabbis teach that adultery in a marriage only has meaning if one party remains faithful partly because of what Hosea is saying here. The other becomes unfaithful. But if both are unfaithful, there is no unfaithfulness. That's what they teach. Adultery becomes an oxymoron, in essence. Yeah, it's not right, but uh, two wrongs make it just wrong. Matthew 5.31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, I read this here, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the case of unchastity make her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, if she had been unfaithful and her husband had already been unfaithful and they knew about it, then they would also know Hosea, which is saying technically there's no unfaithfulness here. Again, a number of options. I'm going to close with this slide here. I just, I'm on the side that this was a setup. That the Pharisees were setting him up, testing him like they always had. That though she was caught, no one was willing enough to throw the ca or cast the first stone because they knew it. And since no accusation was made, the Numbers 5 ceremony was carried out unofficially. She, she thinks the most logical that her husband had cheated on her as well, essentially. I'm not going to say the most logical, but one of the logical possibilities. I would and, say that it's most likely that both, that both, that both were cheating on each other because if she was, if it was a setup, what did the Bible say this? Yeah. Yep. Well, the Bible wouldn't necessarily say it was a setup, but it would definitely say that she would be innocent or not be held accountable to her adultery. And so even the Jews, if the husband had also been unfaithful, would not bring that woman to be stoned because she had not technically been unfaithful. But in trying to use her against the arrival of Yeshua, it was a good means of dragging her in. Her husband probably wouldn't care and so on. But Jesus knew better. He knew all things. And so we see all of the ceremony, everything involved in the Numbers 5 ceremony are involved in the John 8 story. The dust, the name, the priest, the temple, all of it. So... I don't know. Can't answer that. I can't answer why, but I find it interesting, all of these connections that we've looked at, that those who have forsaken me will be written in the dust of the earth, okay, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, basically, you know, they'll, they'll deny the living waters. All of these things playing into, it, it helps us when we read John 8, it's like, wow, there's a lot there that makes biblical sense rather than us letting our minds just go wherever they desire and want to. I, I think it's not explained because you have to have a good understanding of the law. To understand exactly. You do have to have a, a good understanding of the law to understand what's going on in John 8. Again, my people perish for lack of knowledge. 
you will not understand without understanding the Old Testament. So, all right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. And thank you for being faithful to us when we have so many times been unfaithful to you. We deserve to be stoned. We deserve to, to perish. We deserve eternal damnation, every one of us. But yet, because of your faithfulness to us, you have redeemed. You have sent your son to bring forgiveness and to take the punishment for us. The death that we deserved, you took upon yourself. The hell we deserve to go to, you went and descended and proclaimed victory for us. And so for that, we give you thanks, we give you praise, and we celebrate as we finish out this great festival that you have given us. Hallelujah. Praise be Yah. Amen.